The first scripture reading is taken from Exodus 3, verses 7 to 15. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmakers. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the countries of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that that it is I who sent you. Then you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learnt it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for their salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to uh, start out this morning just by, um, if you notice, if you were following along with the Old Testament scripture reading, uh, there was an expert at the end from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 as well, which is where that uh, ending of the reading came from. Please uh, turn your Bibles to the New Testament, page 88, Luke chapter 22. Our New Testament passage this morning, we'll be reading the end of Luke chapter 22 and the beginning of Luke chapter 23. And as you look, many of it, uh, or much of it, will look familiar as we are uh, looking at Jesus before the council and before Pilate. I would like to also mention that this is the... uh, third or fourth, I believe, in a series that Doug has started on Christian doctrine, on knowing what we believe and why. And this morning uh, has been titled, Knowing God, which is our goal. And so please read with me Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through the 23rd chapter, the fifth verse. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together. And they brought him to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. He replied, 
If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And all of them asked, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. And then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation accusation against this man. But they were insisted and but they they were insisted and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he began even to this place. This too is the word of the Lord. So this morning I ask this question, who is God? It's kind of a fun question to ask. And so as I began my sermon and, and was wondering how to approach this, I decided to do what any logical person in our day and age would do, I googled it. Just type it in, who is God? Sort of as a joke, uh, maybe looking for an anecdote or something like this. And to my delight, it found that seemingly everyone on the internet has an opinion about this subject. If you google that question, who is God, you will find every possible answer. Some seem absolutely crazy, but I'm sure someone somewhere believes it. And the reason, though, we ask such a lofty question is to combat the lies that exist out there. We as Christians ought to know what we believe. We as Christians ought to be able to have an answer for that question. And as we continue our search in our series in Christian doctrine, I encourage you to consider what we're facing here. This is not a mere exercise in intelligence or an understanding. As Doug said last week, I really believe the difference between the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, and any other thing on earth is it demands a response. We cannot read this book and read about a man who said, yeah, if you say I'm the king of the Jews, I'm the king of the Jews, and not have an opinion. We cannot read that the Bible say that he was crucified and resurrected on the third day without having an opinion. And so for us who ask and seek the answer to the question, who is God, we also must be accountable for our findings. And more importantly, I believe as we explore these findings, this is not too big of a question for us. If you, as I said, read different opinions around the world, many people will agree that we can't know for sure. I don't know that I agree with that. So then let us explore together what we have here in Scripture. And so here in this passage from the book of Luke, we have Jesus before the chief priests, the scribes, and they accuse him and they say, hey, listen, we need to know who you are. We need to know what you've been up to. We don't like you. If you're familiar with the whole story, they were seeking to kill him, to arrest him. And they say, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Jesus says, listen, if I answer, you won't believe me. And if I try to ask you a question, you won't answer me. I'm in a lose-lose situation here. So let me just tell you this. I'm going to go be with my Lord and Savior. I'm going to go be with God. Jesus has this great opportunity to finally claim who he was publicly before all of the leaders to lay it down once and for all, and he doesn't say anything. And we know throughout Scripture that he does this on an individual level. There's a few times he talks with someone, and they say, yes, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, and he says, yes, you're right, but keep it down. 
but never to the masses. Never does he stand in front of a group of people and say exactly who he is and, and, and what his purpose was. At least in language that seems very clear to me. I know he did plenty to show it throughout his life. I know his actions prove it. But still, at this point, I sometimes wonder, Jesus, why not just let it all out? <laughs> You've been arrested. You know what's coming. You've been betrayed. Just let it all out once and for all. One last great sermon. Let the people know who you are. But as he said, listen, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Even if I said so, you wouldn't believe me. So you know what? As, a, as I said, as a paraphrase, I'm just going to go be with God now. I'm just going to go home. And so then they come back with a direct question and they say, are you the son of God? And Jesus gives this wonderful cryptic answer. Well, you say so. Yeah, you say that I am. But he doesn't refute it. He doesn't say yes. He just says, that's what you believe. And they, say, and they get furious. They say, we've heard it from our own lips. And so they take him to Pilate. And it really, for the record, wasn't Jesus' statement. He just agreed with their statement. But they're not too concerned with details, the Pharisees and the chief priests. And so they go and they take him to Pilate. And in this story, it continues. And Pilate asks him another question. He says, are you, in fact, the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, again, has an opportunity. Jesus, again, has a chance to say exactly who he is. And he says, well, you've said so. We... We have no exact clear public words from Jesus claiming that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is all of these things. He just agrees with them. And at least Pilate is smart enough not to charge him and to condemn him. And as the story goes, we know that Pilate then sends him off to Herod, who sends him back, and then eventually they convict him, not by any guilt, but simply because they wanted one person let go, and they chose Barabbas instead. Jesus never really publicly claims at any of these moments to be the Son of God as I want him to. It would have been so nice if Jesus publicly said on the record who he was. We have a clear explanation in Scripture because we have the whole story and we know the private conversations, but in front of the people, he never said it. And even in the Old Testament, Jesus being the Son of God, God doesn't give an answer either, does he? In the Old Testament passage, which Doug will teach on in the future, he just says, I am that I am. What are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to answer that question? He just sort of affirms statements others have made about him. He doesn't give us a nice, clean, clear 20th century, 21st century definition, does he? It's not something concise and, and, and irrefutable. It's just sort of vague answers. You know, over the years... Many people have examined the scriptures to get an answer about God. People have devoted their life to try and find out who is God. Who was Jesus? And then we have this wonderful book full of evidence, full of stories, full of examples, but very few, very clear definitions. And, and on top of that, we all come from a different place. One of the great things about this church is we all have a different background. We all come from a different country, a different set of beliefs. We have a different lens with which we see life, don't we? Some of us come from Western culture, some of us Eastern. Some of us have a completely different makeup. And we see and think about God based on our experience, based on our background. Some grew up Catholic, some atheist, some Muslim, some Hindu, some evangelical, some completely irreligious or atheist. 
And because of our background, we see God altogether different. So to answer the question, who is God? In this room of two or three hundred people, we might get two or three hundred different answers. Because some of us maybe had an easier financial life, we see God differently than those who had a difficult financial life. It doesn't matter what it is. All of these things affect how we would answer this question. It would be really nice if we could separate our experience and our preconceived notions of who God is when we study the Bible, but it's very difficult. And it is because of this, when we ask that question, we get a, diff- a, a group of different answers. Some say God is love, while others say God is authoritarian. Some say God hates those oppose Him, and some say God loves everybody. Some say God is egalitarian, and some say God is complementarian. Some say God is the source of all safety, and yet some critics even say that God is a murderous dictator, especially in the book of Joshua. So then the question, who is God, has no clear answer. In fact, I think for us, if we talk about knowing God, it's the wrong question. Because in our mindset today, at least how I think, I think in very black and white. I think that everything has to have a space. Everything has to have, maybe it's because I'm a guy. Everything has to have a box and a place and something where it fits nicely and neatly and I know what to do with it. But when I think about God, I realize that God is in fact not an object of knowledge. God is not something for me to attain. The right question then for me, and I think for all of us, is how can we know God more? How can we know more about this God? How can we come to God? See, when we try to define who God is, we project on Him all of our insecurities and our issues and our obsessions. We take our desires and try to use God for those ends. This is what happened in the passage with Jesus and Luke. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are simply trying to take Jesus and use Him to their ends, to solidify their power. But that is not God. God is not something that we can easily define and that we can use for our ends. God is infinite and deeper and more than we can ever understand. So then how do we know Christ more? How do we know God more? I would say this to start. Consider that which brings you the most joy in this life. Consider all that makes you smile. Maybe it's your children, your family. Maybe it's nature. Maybe it's a really great meal with great company. Maybe it's loving friends that endure through hardships, peaceful silence. Whatever brings you joy in this life, Think about that. Picture something. And now I would like to make one caveat here that I'm talking about lasting joy and not happiness. Some people would say, well, things that aren't of God bring me joy, and that's, that's happiness. Sin cannot bring joy. It is empty and unfulfilling by nature. And I mean joy. I mean true, deep, lasting joy. When we talk about knowing God, He is at the center of that joy in your life. He is the fullness, He's the completeness, He's the perfection and the infinite depth of that joy. Meaning that if that item, if that thing that brings you joy, no matter how far down that road you go, the farther and deeper and more you get to know your spouse and love them so, so much, God is there bringing joy. No matter how much you you see your children grow and you participate in that growth and you're there with them and you see more and more of God in them, God is there infinitely. 
No matter what it is that bring you joy, God will always be there. The deeper you plumb that joy, God will be at the center of it forever. A way we've always talked about knowing God or defining God has been the omni words. Some of you may recognize these or be familiar with them. The, the words, there's three big ones that many Christians agree on, that God is omnipotent, that He is all-powerful, that He is omnipresent, that He is everywhere, and that He is omniscient, that He is all-knowing. And this has helped many of us understand a little bit more about the bigness of God, about how powerful God is, about all of these things. But for me, if I'm honest, I get confused with those definitions. I get confused with those definitions because when I think that God is all-powerful, I think I only understand earthly power. How can I understand supernatural power? How can I understand a power that God created the Alps by speaking? I can't understand that power. And when it says that God is omnipresent, yes, I understand that He can be all places at once, but then I only think of earth. And then I talked to someone, there's, there's, there's a woman in the church who studies galaxies for a living, and I talked to her about space and about galaxies, and I can't figure out how God could be all of these places at once. And yes, He is all-knowing, but there is much I don't know, and as soon as I learn a new fact, I think, well, okay, God knows that, and God knows that. and it's just so big. And so I want to share with you a term that has helped me understand and how to know God more. I, I confess that there are many classes in my seminary education that I sort of went through the motions in. Anyone who's been to seminary or has studied uh, doctrine or, or theology as a discipline, there are certain things that don't appeal to us, that don't seem like really big issues. It's nice to know, but I confess some of it didn't grasp my attention. I had a theology professor named Craig Smith He's no famous theologian. He may have written one or two books that was very poorly purchased. But he said something to me once that helped me understand this immensely, and I want to share it with you this morning. That when we think about who God is, we use the word omni, all, that he is all-powerful, all That's fine. But what if we use this word, that God is the maximal of all things? Meaning that the depth to which we understand as it grows and becomes bigger, God is there. And if it's a maximal, if it's, if it's a maximal idea, then that means it's never ending. See, to me, the word all gives me the idea that there's an end, that there's a quantifiable number that eventually I'll understand. Eventually I'll see, okay, this is what God means by he's all powerful. But no, God is the maximal of all things, which means that then for my life, on earth, I will continue to know more about the love and the depth and the power of God, and it will never end. My learning and my knowledge and my experience of God will only get deeper and further and more full. And then on top of that, what makes me even more joyful is that this is going to happen for all eternity. That for all eternity, when we spend in heaven with God, we will spend eternity knowing more and more and more about who God is. And the more we know, the bigger God becomes. And the more we worship and the more full we become in the love of God. This is why heaven will be amazing. We will spend eternity knowing God more, more fully. And the deeper we go, we will see that there is more and more to see forever and ever. Our ability to feel joy, to have joy in this life comes from God. And it is even magnified further by God. The deeper we go, the more God is there. And when I mentioned that which brings you joy before, whatever it was you thought of, think of all the joy 
you get and the more you experience and know in relationships with children, in nature, in scripture, whatever it is, that when we know God and when we pursue knowing God, not just defining God, but when we really pursue knowing God, these things only get better. Those joys only get more full. Reading scripture becomes more and more a practice of joy and less and less a chore. Our families and how we lead in our relationships become more and more centered around God and His principles rather than what we desire or what we can get from them. In relationships, the more you experience and know, the better it gets. The relationship becomes deeper, fuller, more of joy, or more full of joy and meaning. It's not always perfect, but it becomes a great source of joy. Who is God? I would say this. God is the unlimited depth of our hearts and souls and our understanding. All of our needs and devotions and sources of joy in this life and in the life to come. There is no place He is not. No place can ever exist He will not be. There is no love. There is no true love that can exist without God. And no peace without His presence. We've seen this in previous weeks discussing Revelation. As Doug has talked about Special revelation and general revelation in nature and scripture, in relationships in church. There are two passages in one book I want to recommend if any of you just wants to know more about who God is. Two great passages I love. One is in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The mourning and anguish Jesus feels over the loss of a friend is palpable. And we see the loving depth of our God. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens talking about the greatness and the power and the infinite nature of God. How God is above all other gods. How God is the maximal, unending depth for all things good in this world. And there's a book, if any of you read the home group questions for this week by A.W. Tozer that I referenced called The Knowledge of the Holy, which for me is just fantastic. See, we as Christians sometimes want God in a definition, in a way that we can understand. But we can only define the creation. We can define the created order through science and biology and physics and chemistry, and these are all great pursuits using the gifts God gave us. But we can't define God in the same way. God is eternal. We are eternal. And the purpose is that there will be no end to our relationship with God. That all of these things will pass away, but that we will spend eternity knowing God. There is so much more to know. There is no end. This is why I believe Jesus didn't correct the scribes or Pilate. Why God gave sort of a weird answer to Moses. We can only understand a small fraction of God. And so he has given us pieces, information, and things that bring us joy that we would experience God in all of these things. But we must continue to want more. We must continue to pursue God. We must continue to seek out these things He has given us. Many people want to know and come to church to be a better person or a better Christian or to stop doing bad things or to start doing good things. And those are all byproducts of knowing God more. You want to get rid of the sin in your life, pursue God. You want to be a better husband or a better student or better employee, pursue God. Dig the depths of His love. Dig the depths of his relationships he's given us in the body of Christ. Find the things from him that bring you true joy and cling to them. 
Knowing about God is not knowing God. We must know who God is and spend our whole lives pursuing those things. And when we spend our time, brothers and sisters in Christ, exploring who God is, we then become the people we want to be. Because when we see a relationship, we see something that honors God, not something that is transactional that we can take from it. When we are pursuing God at work, we see an opportunity to be a light to the world rather than take advantage of others for our own gain. We are designed to be curious, but we have taken curiosity to define God. Let us not worry about the definition of who God is. Let us focus on the pursuit of knowing Him. And this morning, we have a perfect opportunity for that, don't we? We take communion to remember the evidence that God gave us of this depth. Perfect love and sacrifice. We could spend an absolute eternity pondering the sacrifice of Jesus and it would still amaze us. I could spend my entire life thinking of why God did this and I don't know that I'll ever fully understand and comprehend it. But I know that it brings me joy. And I know that it brings me fullness. And I know that this act that we will take part of this morning makes me more the person that God has called me to be and less the person that my selfish desire desires. So this morning, we will worship together at the table. We will plumb the depths of the knowledge and love of God together. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you. God, though I desire a definition for you, I thank you for not giving me one. Instead, Lord, I thank you for equipping me to live a life that pursues knowing you. Lord, I thank you for this church that you've given us all to learn and grow in you. I thank you for your holy scriptures, which also provide a way. I thank you for your creation, which gives us avenues to see your grandeur and your glory. I thank you for our gifts, our jobs our families, all the things we have each day that you've set there to know more about you. Father, let us lay our pride and fear down. Let us live lives that seek after knowing you more. Father, encourage us to know you more for all eternity, to dig at the depths of your love and your truth and your grace to us. Lord, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.